to share and hopefully have a conversation about um, different perspectives on something that's developing, you know, a really important issue that's developing all the time. So I'm going to talk about the growth of uh, user-generated content, uh, citizen journalism, social media, uh, in the news business, and how it's transforming uh, the business and practice of journalism in about three years. And specifically, uh, I'm going to look at um, what's happened, so what are, what are some of the underlying drivers which have led to this, uh, how have audiences embraced social media, so um, how's that played into the whole picture, uh, and then uh, how have news organisations responded to this uh, explosion of citizen journalism and social media and some of the challenges that that has thrown up, so some of the research questions that that's uh, thrown up. Uh, and I'm going to look at it, um, those questions based on my own personal experience as a journalist, uh, originally working in radio and television for the BBC and internet, um, but also then drawing on, uh, on research that uh, I've done since uh, leaving the BBC, so with the Royce Institute, so there are some, some of the reports which are on the website, uh, and I'm also actively looking at how it, much more from the journalistic point of view at the moment, we're doing some research with City University of London, um, and you know, broadly, all of that leads me to conclude and argue that we're we're still really just at the beginning of an explosion of participation enabled by uh, mobile phones, always-on connectivity, and these incredibly powerful global social networks. And all of that has implications for the way in which news is produced, the way it's consumed, and it's bringing to an end this era of the one-way broadcast. And in doing so, it's undermining uh, the traditional gatekeepers. So that may be newspapers, broadcasters, but actually it goes wider than just news business, uh, also government institutions, businesses that have controlled information. And uh, to illustrate that, I'm just going to start with, uh, with a, a, a specific example. So a story from last year, <coughs> the, the London riots. Uh, this was really one of many recent news stories, uh, you could pick any, where social media has played a really important role. So on the one hand we saw closed networks like BlackBerry Messenger, in this case, being used for, uh, by the protesters in, in organising uh, the disturbances. We also saw journalists uh, and police using networks like Twitter, for example, to get their messages out, to, to get information out. Uh, but also to find out what was going on. And we saw politicians like David Cameron joining in too, so reinforcing social media's role as part of the story, as part of the narrative. But I think, you know, personally, living through this story, uh, it was extraordinary to watch how social media became the default way in which the news was broken. So traditional media, with its print cycles, uh, regular print cycles, even television, but at, at best can, can have a split screen and can, can watch what's going on in two places, just simply couldn't keep up with a story that was literally erupting uh, in every part of London in, in real time and other cities uh, around the UK. And so the story was emerging through individual contributions from hundreds of thousands of citizen camera phones on the street. Uh, and then social media tools were enabling people to really navigate what was happening in real time in a very granular sense. So um, for me personally, Twitter was my eyes and ears. So if you, either if you followed it in aggregate using a, a hashtag that pulls all these contributions together, so in this case it was uh, London Riots, um, or um, 
Or if you put a word like Wanstead, which is, which is my hometown, into the search engine, um, uh, you, uh, you could see really what was going on. And for me, it's a real jaw-dropping moment when you realize the power of this kind of real-time user-generated stuff to, to tell stories, to know what was going on. And as a journalist, uh, we thought that's what we did. Uh, very powerful around the, the London riots. So that, that was uh, examples of putting my local area in and just seeing up uh, exactly what was going on uh, in the high street uh, and whether it was safe to go home and all those kinds of things. So something that was really hard for any newspaper or broadcaster to, uh, to deliver in the same way. The other thing that really struck me that evening, uh, particularly talking to younger people, was that everyone had seen the same one or two uh, videos. And this was before the evening news was uh, was broadcast on television. So it wasn't a broadcast bringing the news to them, it was the individual items of video themselves had found people through social networks. So this is probably the best known example. It was a uh, Malaysian student who was, um, who was assaulted, his jaw was broken, and then as people helped him back up, uh, then another group of people mugged him or say people who were helping him mugged him and stole something from his backpack. And that sort of uh, story played out in video in a really graphic way was then uh, went around on the internet virally. Uh, this clip alone had three million views, but there were many, many other versions of it and two or three other examples. So the point is that that, that was so that was such a powerful story that it went out and found people through social networks before it later ended up on, on television news. So just as these uh, new tools have enabled us to see dreadful things as they happen more quickly, it's amazing also to see how they were that they were also used the next day in helping organise the uh, the fight back. So uh, the cleanup. So you had Facebook pages um, organising uh, people coming onto the streets, uh, helping to clean up all the all the destruction. So the symbol of this was, was a broom. So you had a lot of little broom pictures all over the social networks. And spontaneously, people organised themselves to go onto the streets of Clapham or Clapham or Croydon or other neighbourhoods, armed with these brooms and shovels and gloves and dustpans to, to sort of help put London back together again, or to help organise food and help for people who had uh, been um, uh, had lost their homes uh, through through the fires. So, if you put all this together. Um, it's really extraordinary how powerful and commonplace social media now feels to many people. Especially if you consider that YouTube's only been around for seven years, Facebook for even less than that. And now uh, prime ministers and media owners are talking about it as if it's, uh, on the one hand, either a threat to national security, on the other hand, saviour of democracy in the Middle East, um, or, uh, or, or a silver bullet that's going to help newspapers and, and magazines find, uh, find new readership. And as we know, um, these developments are pretty much commonplace around the world now, as active citizens demand to be part of the story. Uh, so this is a quote from a futurologist called uh, Paul Sappho. And you know, as he says, people are no longer content to passively consume the output of news organisations with a monopoly of distribution. The game has changed, and we're now in this era of the active citizen. So it's not that everyone wants to participate, it's that point at the end uh, you know, they expect to have that capability now to be able to answer back if they want to. And of course, uh, fueling all this has been 
these amazing new tools. This is a, this is this is really what led to it taking taking off. So the the internet was always about the read write web. You could always write to it as well as consume in a broadcast away from it. Um, but what made the difference was you know the invention of tools as simple and easy as YouTube and Facebook. This was a famous uh, Time magazine cover from the end of 2006, which really marked the change, um, which had the uh, the person of the year instead of a politician. The person of the year was uh, was you, was the citizen journalist, was the, 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 the person who could actually change things in a way that wasn't possible before. And, uh, and that cover really captured that sense that power was shifting away from traditional institutions, those who traditionally created and packaged and controlled information and that was moving to individuals. And then more recently, um, that still wasn't enough to make it really, uh, really explode. So, so the thing that made it really explode was the second phase, which was the, um, which was the creation of these huge, powerful social networks. So the first phase was the, was the YouTube bit, which was the creation of personal media, the ability to make personal media much more easily. The second phase, was the ability to distribute it, which didn't exist before Twitter and Facebook. Really. That was really the thing that, that, that pushed it. So that allows any kind of information, video, text, pictures, to be distributed across the world in seconds. And it's really that heady combination of, as I said at the beginning, mobile phones, improved connectivity, and social networks as the distributor that have provided the, the sort of critical mass for what we call the peer-to-peer -peer internet. To, uh, to really take off, and let's say we're in the early phases of it. So we've heard lots of examples uh, you know, from London riots or whatever, but um, what we now have, sort of three years in, is uh, some objective data which actually shows what's been happening. So this is a chart um, which shows the extraordinary rise of uh, Facebook and Twitter uh, between the years 2009 and the, um, 2011, which is when it was really uh, when it was really taking off. And um, it shows Twitter and Facebook against CNN. So CNN is the bottom line, the, um, the red line you can see. In fact, I think it was about 2008 when Facebook overtook CNN. Twitter overtook uh, CNN in the middle of 2009 when there was, uh, was around the time of the Iranian protests. And uh, today, uh, somewhere around 40% of all internet users in the world, this is a global chart from Alexa, are using Facebook every week. Almost 10 million are using Twitter, and uh, that's in terms of numbers. In, in terms of time spent, um, 25 minutes a day for Facebook is the average now, slightly down from a few years ago. Um, the average for a news site like CNN is five minutes. This is a chart from the Oxford Internet Institute, uh, which has been tracking the growth of participation in the UK since 2003, Oxford Institute is at Balliol College just down the road. And you can see here a lot of the same trends. So pretty much all of the types of participation that they measure have been growing. So posting photos, posting messages, writing blogs, personal websites, social networks. But the real, the real uh, standout one there, the big story, is the growth of those social networks. So the bars on the left. So going from marginal uh, or zero in, in the case of social networks. The mainstream activity, 60% of everyone in the UK uses a uh, social network every week. Uh, Marginal to mainstream within eight years. So as James was saying earlier, at the Reuters Institute, we've just launched a, a major survey of digital activity across uh, five countries. 
and specifically looking at things like um, the use of social and digital media in news. Um, what we found is that uh, in some countries, uh, like the United States, the majority of people are now participating with the news every, in some way every week. So there used to be a rule which people talked about, which was the, uh, the 1990 rule, the 991 rule, which basically said that uh, just a tiny minority of people were doing most of the participation. And you know, these figures basically show that that is no longer the case. Um, so what we asked people was, uh, you know, do you participate with the news? Do you share news stories? Do you, uh, do you vote? Do you, uh, do you comment on a news story? Do you post photos to news sites? We asked nine different questions. And uh, in the United States, 69% did at least one of those things every week. At least one of those things every week. And in most European countries that we surveyed, uh, it, was, it was close to uh, 50%. So these are some of the detailed figures, which uh, should be copies of, of the report uh, online and physically which you can go and have a look at. Um, and uh, so it's really giving a sense of, of the more granular sense about how people are participating with, with social media, what kind of participation. So if you take commenting on a news story, for example, um, it's not universal everywhere. So in the United States, 27% of people are commenting on a news story, whereas in the UK, it's 10%. So almost twice as much. But it's still a really regular <coughs> in all the countries that we surveyed. So one of the other big stories, um, which is part of this story, is the growth of social sharing. So the sharing of news stories electronically through, through online. Uh, in fact, we found that uh, in total, 20% of internet users in the UK share a news story every week. So that might be via email, it might be via a social network. Um, and also people say, uh, and what's driving that is that people are more likely to click on a story that comes from somebody they know, so from a person as opposed to a news brand. So 57% said they were more likely to click on a link that came from a friend than from, a, from, a, from anywhere else. So the result of that and uh, which obviously plays into the growth of social networks, is that the way people find news stories is changing. So um, again, this is from the, uh, from the survey that we did, and these are UK figures. Um, but it used to be that you got to a brand or um, you got to news either via a brand or via a search engine, and they remain incredibly important. So the, the most important way is still browsing to a news site and a search engine. Um, but now we see social media becoming, starting to become a really major factor. So 20% finding news stories that way every week. And um, many people now use that as their default. So they actually, when they wake up in the morning, uh, they will start, not with a news site, they will start with a Twitter feed or a Facebook feed uh, rather than a news site. And this is particularly the case with, uh, with younger people. So you can see from this chart that, that young people are far more like, this is uh, basically saying, you know, how do you find a news story? Do you find it by search or do you find it by social media? And it's just breaking it down by age groups. So the age group on the left is 16 to 24s in the UK, the one on the right is over 45s. Uh, and you can see that, that people are far more likely to use social media to find a news story if they're younger. Uh, whereas for older people, it's the other way around. So they're three times more likely to use a search engine than they are to use so social media. So these are really uh, big changes. Uh, they're big changes around the way news is found, distributed, and of course how news is created in the first place. 
and leading to some really big questions for media companies, uh, researchers, academics, uh, anybody interested in the future of news. So if people can produce their own news, if they can distribute their own news, if people trust their friends to tell them what's going on, what is the role of editors and journalists? Is there still a role for, for editors and journalists? Secondly, at a time when the role of the professional journalist and the amateur is blurring, how are traditional media organizations adapting? What difference is it making to the business and practice of how they do their jobs every day? Thirdly, we can see that social media is speeding up the news cycle. So what is the impact of that on the quality of information? So maybe more information, but what, what does that mean for the quality of information? How do we know uh, what is true if it hasn't been verified by a professional journalist? Indeed, are professional standards of journalism changing because of social media? Uh, is it contributing to what Nicholas Carr, the author Nicholas Carr calls the shallows, or uh, what Andrew Keane calls the cult of the amateur in, in his, his book? And then uh, there's the gatekeeping question. So does the sharing of news, whether it's in real time uh, around general news or whether it's actually down to the niches and special interest groups via social networks encouraged by social networks, is that encouraging an echo chamber where people are getting an increasingly small number of sources of news uh, and just sharing with their, with their friends? <coughs> or is it encouraging instead a greater diversity of sources and more serendipity? And many of these questions are not yet resolved, but I think these are some of the key uh, research questions. I'm not going to answer all of those questions in this presentation, but you know we'll touch on some of them. What I wanted to do for the next bit is really just focus on um, on how journalism has responded, how media companies have responded to these uh, to these trends. So what's been um, it's been really interesting to see over the last three years uh, management and journalists embracing social media and news. And I think it has been three years. When I, when I was here as a research fellow in 2009, um, there was very little acceptance of, of social media. There's very little engagement with social media in most mainstream media companies. Um, and I think there are three reasons why major media companies have essentially engaged heavily with social media in the last three years. So firstly, uh, telling better stories. Uh, so, and that ranges from how social media has helped them pick up breaking news from Twitter or YouTube right through to just uh, asking your network to help you research stories. And in many cases, that's really been the primary motivator that has got journalists engaged with social media. Uh, I think what's happening now is we're beginning to see a couple of other reasons. So secondly, um, building engaged communities to drive uh, loyalty. I think there's an increasing realization that uh, social media helps build brand loyalty. So communities who will be more loyal to their brand, to your brand, if they feel they have a statement, if they feel they contributed in some way. And at a time when people can go anywhere and click of a mouse, um, that's really important for the long-term uh, business survival of many news organizations. So there's a reason why the business side of news organizations has suddenly got interested in digital social media. And then um, thirdly, uh, the whole distribution side of things. So I talked a minute ago about the, the rise of social sharing, and that's making a huge difference to the amount of traffic that is now coming from social networks 
uh, and therefore what they're doing to seed content there. So I'll just talk a little bit about each of those, starting with uh, the storytelling aspect of it. So this was one of the first celebrated cases. Um, uh, so the plane crash in the River Hudson in January 2009, you may remember it. The picture on the left was taken by a citizen journalist, or just a citizen, who happened to be on the New York ferry. Um, and the one on the right was the professional news photograph, the first professional news photograph that was taken by an AFP photographer. 32 minutes later. So 32 minutes essentially was the advantage in this particular case of the amateur over the professional. And uh, the advantage also of any professional media company that was monitoring those, those networks like Twitter and Twitpic in terms of getting that news uh, to, to consumers uh, quicker. Uh, it was the same impetus that led the BBC to set up its user-generated hub in the first place in, in 2005. So the user-generated hub, um, yeah, so the picture on the left at the bottom uh, is video footage that was taken on the London Underground uh, when um, following a bombing in 2005. And, and that video was the first citizen-generated video to lead the main evening television news that day. But it also prompted the BBC to really change its policies and change its resourcing allocation to say, actually, for any major news event now, we need a group of people who are really focused on uh, on uh, working with audiences to uh, to verify and bring in user-generated content. So that's what the user-generated hub at the BBC is about. There are now 20 members of staff who, uh, even at a time of cutbacks in the BBC, who are permanently working on uh, working with audiences actively, engaging with them, and delivering a range of journalism that, that is done with, in partnership with audiences every day. And uh, Trusha there is, is one of the uh, assistant editors who, who leads that team and uh, surfacing comments, videos, and pictures from a variety of sources every day with his team. Um, CNN, so uh, this is a picture of a guy called Solomon Hood Burke who leads a team of social media producers and editors at CNN. Uh, so for example, after the Brevik shootings in Norway in July last year, um, his job was use, uh, was immediately go into the social networks to find eyewitnesses. So within three minutes, uh, as he says there, he identified uh, an eyewitness on YouTube, and less than half an hour later, he had verified his story. Uh, uh, both by phone, but also you can see there using geo-targeting uh, in Twitter to make sure that this person was, was uh, who he said he was and, the story, and, and where he said he was. And, the, uh, and, and then he was put on CNN English. Uh, he also spoke Spanish, so he was also used on CNN Spanish. That's a sort of practical sense in which, uh, and that's, that's what he does in breaking news, but on a day-to-day -day basis, his role is to understand the trends in social media in different countries, and to inject that knowledge into the two o'clock um, main CNN Global Conference. So either him or one of his colleagues will be looking at the trends in social media in different parts of the world, seeing what stories are, are being missed by the mainstream agenda, and then injecting that into CNN's agenda. It's often the first thing that's talked about in the CNN uh, meeting room. Not everyone approves of these trends. So I mentioned Andrew Keane earlier. Uh, and you know there are some legitimate questions. There's newspapers and broadcasters fall over themselves to incorporate all this user-generated content. Um, 
Andrew Keane is just one person to warn about the dangers of that, of what he calls the cult of the amateur, uh, undermining the quality of information to some extent is his argument, but actually it's also just the, the, the role of the professional journalist and the, um, the time of institutions to investigate things with the sort of backup that comes from, that can only come from professional uh, journalism. And indeed, there are a number of cases where things have, have gone wrong, where the process has gone wrong. So a good example was the death of Osama bin Laden. Uh, these pictures shortly <coughs> afterwards were circulated, not just through Twitter and social networks, actually on the internet generally, purporting to show uh, his dead body. Uh, they turned out to be fake, but not before they were picked up by Pakistani television, uh, as well as a number of television services in the Middle East, broadcast back to the Middle East, where they could have been extremely inflammatory, uh, they were, as well as a number of reputable newspapers in the UK and uh, the United States picked those up and put them on the front pages of, their, of, of, the, of the newspapers. Um, so partly as a response, uh, we have seen the development of more tools to help identify these fakes. And so the, the picture on the left is, uh, shows some software which is deployed by AFP, one of the news agencies. And the role of that software is to spot the joins where um, a software program like Photoshop might have been used to doctor a picture. And indeed it was used in this particular case by AFP to immediately spot this one's hoax and put out that advisory uh, to all of its, uh, its clients. Um, another celebrated case was actually where the uh, Iranian government um, issued a picture of its missile launches and trying to make it look a bit more impressive by adding in a few extra missiles going a bit faster. And again, that was spotted through this kind of, uh, these kind of software techniques. In fact, there's loads of examples of this kind of thing. The website on the right is a, uh, a startup called Storyful, which was founded by an Irish journalist called Mark Little, who used to be a foreign correspondent. And um, what they do is, is they provide effectively a wire service of social media output content for journalists. Um, but they add sort of editorial curation onto that. So essentially their job is to verify uh, or curate appropriate feeds, uh, and verify some of that content, quite often contacting people who put YouTube videos up there, which they do for YouTube, but then they sell a professional service, a bit like a wire service would in professional news organizations. Um, and they also publish their methodologies about how they go around verifying this kind of content. Uh, BBC also on its blog has an excellent uh, post which talks about the kind of verification techniques that they do, which is a mixture of technical and good old-fashioned journalistic uh, techniques, uh, which if you're interested, go and, go and look at. Going back to the idea of um, telling about stories I've talked a lot about, broadcasting organisations, but, but newspapers are also using this very heavily. Uh, this is a Colombian newspaper um, which uh, called El Colombiano, which is in uh, the second city of Colombia, Medellin, and is the main news provider there. And so it uses a tool, a software tool, which aggregates tips from its readers. And every day, uh, and, and they aggregate SMS, so it may come from SMS, it may come from email, it may come from, uh, from internet sources. Uh, make them from Twitter, all these get aggregated and then goes into a workflow tool that then pushes it into specialist desks to follow up, 
but the outcome of that is every day on the front page of El Colombiano, five news stories published that come from, from citizens. So they're putting it right at the front of, of, of their journalism, and it's been very, very effective for them in not only telling better stories, but also driving greater loyalty with, with readers. But in many ways, uh, user-generated content is really just the start of a, of a much bigger trend involving audiences in the whole journalistic process. So here in the UK, the Guardian uh, editor, Alan Rusbridger, has been a sort of cheerleader for this, this approach, um, which he talks about it sort of opening up journalism and its processes. So the Guardian, for example, has, has invited audiences to comment and influence its news agenda. So it's published the results of its news conference and invited people to contribute to that news conference. Um, it's also developing this, uh, what they call mutualized journalism, this idea of mutualized journalism, where readers contribute in many different ways into a more conversational and less broadcast style of journalism. So for example, um, the paper has pioneered live blogs uh, where journalists effectively host a live conversation around a big breaking news story. So in this case, around the trial of the Russian protest ban, Pussy Riot. And what it is about is, is taking verified facts, uh, and comments from, uh, and information from, from journalists, uh, verified sources, and mixing that with comment and insight from, uh, from social media. And this kind of format is proving uh, very popular with audiences. So for The Guardian, about 10% of the entire page views of its website are now generated through live blog pages. Uh, the BBC has been another pioneer and does a huge amount of this with, uh, again, the same team of people we, we saw earlier trawling through the social networks on big stories and injecting uh, the best of those things into the stream. Uh, which also in that case includes uh, live video coverage where they have it. This was around the Royal Wedding. Um, so a sort of personal example of mutualized journalism comes from um, Jemima Kish, who's a technology journalist at The Guardian, and she is constantly having conversations with her followers about what she should cover and, and what, what their stories mean. So she calls her followers her brains trust and she frequently asks them questions or picks up issues, uh, and it really does on a personal level help drive uh, her agenda and what she wants to do. This is, an, this is another Guardian example from four years ago, which I really like because it taps into the idea of how you can use the creativity of the audience, uh, not just in text, but in this case in pictures. So the Guardian asks people to send in messages to Obama, basically, a message to Obama, and they arrived on post-it notes, pictures, and kind of striking image. Uh, that turned into uh, a magazine's uh, story, four-page article for, for their magazine G2, which was very successful, and then became so successful they turned it into a book, and uh, so that generated uh, a new revenue stream for, uh, for the Guardian. Probably didn't earn much money, but um, but again, uh, you know, I think a really creative, uh, a creative idea. So, um, lots of examples I've talked about in terms of telling better stories. I think it's a bit harder to find examples of sort of engaging audiences, but perhaps the best example is um, National Public Radio's strategist Andy Carvin, uh, who built an enormous following on Twitter during the Arab Spring by essentially following lots of interesting people and then just retweeting what they said, often in an unverified way. 
Um, so he ended up doing a bit more than that, so um, checking out stories, rebutting stories, passing on information of all kinds, and actually getting his, his followers to help work out whether something was true or not. So it was kind of the whole process in the raw. Uh, sometimes he sent up to 1,400 tweets in a single day. Uh, so effectively, he'd become a sort of one-man, 24-hour news channel, and he wasn't even a journalist. <laughs> So, but it, what, what it was was hugely influential for um, for him personally, his brand. He's built a very <laughs> successful career off the back of it, uh, but also for um, for his own uh, you know, the company he works for, NPR, who are you know thought of now as absolutely at the, at the forefront of of you know, a different kind of journalism. Uh, this is another example. Um, Nick Kristoff, New York Times Books Prize winner, who. Uh, somebody who's embraced, really embraced this whole idea of engaging audiences um, alongside traditional methods. So he hasn't abandoned his notebook and pen. So when he goes into Tower Square, he still goes around with his traditional notebook and pen, but he's also got uh, a camera. Uh, he's also um, uh, got Twitter with him. And he's just able to combine those traditional tools with, with some of these social media tools which means that when he arrives, he's immediately engaging in um, not just a conversation with people in the square, but a global conversation, and able to, if you like, moderate what's going on. He's also able to be a 24-hour news brand in the same way as Andy Carbon is, opening up possibilities for newspaper journalists, which absolutely didn't exist before. The other big change, um, so we've talked about telling stories, we've talked about engaging audiences. Uh, the other big change has been the way social networks now offer opportunities to distribute those stories. So we saw the audience evidence earlier, so 20% or more people sharing stories every week. But what does that actually mean from a news provider's point of view? How are they using that and how are they trying to tap into uh, those trends? So here are a couple of examples. So this was a story published by The Economist late last year, so slightly provocatively titled story about why doing a PhD or being an academic <laughs> or stuff is a bit of a waste of time. Um, and in previous you know, eras, that might have got you know, a few people reading The Economist until uh, you know, that, that month. Um, but actually, that story accounted for 1% of the entire website traffic for three months. And as it was passed around a whole load of networks, effectively, so blogs, social media networks, email, university mailing lists, uh, so an example really of how these new trends really are extending the shelf life of news stories in a way that simply wouldn't have happened before. So why was that one so successful? It wasn't just in Oxford, it was around the world. It was around the world, yeah. It was around the world. So it just it used the global nature of these networks, all these paranoid academics uh, played into those underlying fears with the headlines. Which the economists are always very happy to admit. Uh, that's what they do, they kind of simplify things. And then if you read the whole thing, it's quite, it's quite nuanced and sensible for that. But yeah, so. They've always done it. <coughs> so it's the art of a good headline. So many of these things don't change what makes great journalism, you know, which is the art of a good headline. Yes. Uh, here's another example. So Al Jazeera, um, this is more about the business side actually. So Al Jazeera had really been struggling for cable distribution in the United States before the Arab Spring and during the Arab Spring. And um, they launched a hugely effective Twitter hashtag campaign, a sponsored campaign to essentially buy the top terms 
of the day based on what was happening in the news that day. So it might be about you know, Mubarak making a statement or the Egyptian army or something. They would look at the top terms, they'd buy against those, and then the whole aim of it was to push to their live stream. And it wasn't trying to get to people in the Middle East, it was trying to get to people in the States to raise awareness of the live video stream. Uh, in total, those social media campaigns led to a 2,500% increase in the traffic to Al Jazeera uh, online video stream, and obviously a really significant increase in the audience in the United States, which is where it was trying to build uh, carriage. And uh, so again, we're starting to see social media driving very different outcomes. News organizations are also becoming far more professional about the way in which they, they see that content now. So just one example, BBC Breaking account uh, now has 4 million followers. And one of the reasons it's got 4 million followers is because over the last six months they invested real dedicated journalistic effort into how they write the headlines for those stories and how they deliver the feed. Um, which is not surprising given that recent research in the state shows that most breaking news stories in Twitter don't come from citizen journalists. Most of them come from one of 22 breaking news feeds of mainstream news organizations. Um, so the importance of mainstream organizations are beginning to realize the importance of social media for distribution, not just for, uh, for, for getting news in the first place. Uh, the Guardian delivers similar um, feeds in Twitter, obviously, uh, but also runs uh, social newsreader apps in Facebook. This is a new thing that started last year. And along with uh, Yahoo, Washington Post, The Independent, and many others, and when it launched at the end of last year, they got six million downloads for that Facebook application. They got a million extra page views every day, generated by the Facebook app alone, which was more more hits, more referrals than they were getting from Google News. So from Google. Um, now that's actually dropped off a bit since, various reasons, Facebook have changed their algorithms, but it, it gives you a sense of the importance of this. So what we're seeing is news companies beginning to colonize social media, um, engaging in new ways, creating new roles to, to manage that process. Um, so this is not about news companies taking over social media or social media replacing uh, traditional news, um, it's much more of a sort of a mixed economy. So just to illustrate this interrelationship between new and old, I'm just going to finish with um, with the story of the death of Osama bin Laden. And uh, in this case, in this, uh, this is the visualization of that on uh, Twitter and how the, how the, how the news spread. It originally, um, this story originated in fact in Pakistan, uh, there was a live blogger of the Pakistani cafe owner in Ahmedabad who happened to be hearing the helicopters going overhead and started doing live blogging. He didn't actually have anyone following him, so nobody actually knew this was going on and what it was. Um, but anyway, uh, the first sort of real way in which it was broken on the internet was not actually from him, uh, but came from a former advisor to Donald Rumsfeld, who um, uh, who's put out this tweet. So I'm told by a reputable person that um, the US killed Bin Laden. Uh, now at the time, the media kind of knew about these rumors too, but they weren't able to say anything because President Obama hadn't got up and officially announced it. So the official media couldn't actually say anything about it and there was nothing sort of uh, verified. Um, but it did spread on Twitter. And one of the reasons it spread on Twitter was because uh, 
Brian Stelter, the New York Times journalist, who's one of these sort of um, uh, one of these journalists who's really built up influence and become one of these network nodes, picked it up and retweeted it. And at that point, it really sort of took off and amplified. And it's it's a great example of how um, mainstream media or mainstream media journalists who have that reputation and credibility in the network, and who spend time doing that, can have enormous influence. So within 30 minutes, it's spread around America to very, very large number of people. So by the time the president got up to speak, most of the people knew um, knew what the story was. Now, none of this means that mainstream media is irrelevant, um, because it's not a replacement, as these quotes show. Uh, social media and mainstream media play different roles in this kind of story. So social media, effectively, is acting as the alerting mechanism that then draws people to mainstream outlets for, for context, for analysis, and for further information. So verification and contextualization functions of mainstream media remain absolutely crucial for these users. So I saw the post on Facebook, I immediately turned to the New York Times, and then yelled for my fiance to turn on the television news. Um, and this is a fairly sort of typical pattern we see in this particular kind of, of story. So we've gone through um, a period where um, <coughs> three years ago, journalists uh, laughed at social media uh, and the whole sort of ridiculousness of Twitter to one where social media has become absolutely central to the business and, and practice of journalism. And here are just a few quotes that I think um, show that from some of the leading organisations. So uh, for the New York Times, absolutely central to the way they do journalism now. Uh, for the BBC, uh, if you're in news and sport, you effectively at the very least have to have a Twitter account to listen, even if you're not actively engaging in distributing content. Um, and it's crucial for uh, some of the new pure players like um, MSN. Um, so I've been doing some research from uh, for City University about about what lies behind that. So how are our journalists using Twitter, and why are they using it, and what do they value? And here's the sort of the ordered list, which just mirrors hopefully the examples that we talked about earlier. Uh, in terms of what they're using it for and why they value it. So predicting, alerting, breaking news, just listening, following um, following people in your particular specialism, uh, finding out about stories, getting tips, um, getting insights, uh, tracking trends to inform the news generator either personal or on a, on a company basis, distributing content, finding a new audience, getting feedback to what you've done, so you put something out, did people enjoy it, didn't they, get me to And then sort of that whole idea of crowdsourcing, that you can actually, um, if you don't know uh, about a particular nuance, you can ask people and get much quicker responses than you were able to do in the past. And when you ask journalists today about how they feel about social media, there are many, many positives. Um, this is a word cloud we did from the, from the interviews that, that we did. The word that uh, says the positive things there is that it's um, transformative, it's fast, it's surprising, conversational, um, all the rest. But there's also some negatives in there and some issues. And the word that kind of leaps out is this sort of overwhelming sense. So, you know, we haven't cracked social media effectively from a journalist's point of view. This is actually still quite a, a tricky thing. And that's really because we're still at the beginning of this revolutionary change. 
from a journalist as a broadcaster, effectively, in one way, to journalist as somebody who's having a conversation. Um, so we've had this explosion of, of con content, but this explosion of perspectives. But the real challenge now is how do you effectively filter this mass of unstructured information? How do you sort the useful things from the less useful content? And how do you do that in order to tell better stories, in order to engage audiences in new ways, and in order to distribute that content? But I think, um, but I think the prize is absolutely immense. So once we get the filters right, I think that um, it will it will really help to deliver all of those things for the journalists. Well, thank you very very much.